You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. I think we all have a time or a place that we look back upon with affection. And maybe it was because we think that life was simpler back then. Or maybe it's because we got to spend some time with a particular person. And maybe the most celebrated example of this in the Twilight Zone is walking distance. Now Martin Sloan was a good man who was just tired of the rat race and wanted to go back to his youth in Homeville. But what if we took Martin Sloan and stood him in front of a dirty, cracked mirror? A mirror that shows us a very different man, a cruel man, a man who takes the greatest pleasure in the destruction of others, not by his hands, but by his checkbook. Martin Sloan might look in that mirror and see Mr. Feathersmith looking back at him. You call it well-managed. You're speaking comparatively, of course. I'm speaking of that little matter of your financial problems. I happen to know for a fact that you secured a loan for $3 million, a loan payable on demand. Here is the note. I bought up that note, Mr. Dietrich. I paid an exorbitant amount of money for it, more than it was worth. But it was, well, shall I say, an excellent opportunity. It reads, payable on demand. So, Mr. Dietrich, on demand it is. I am calling this note. I want it paid three million dollars. I want your personal check in that amount or I'll have to send a few sign painters out to the Dietrich Tool and Die Company and have them cross off the name Dietrich. But do cruel and wicked men like Mr. Feathersmith ever look back? Do they hold times and places in their hearts the same way good people do? Well, let's find out. Because of late, I think of Cliffordville. Witness a murder. The killer is Mr. William Feathersmith, a robber baron whose body composition is made up of a refrigeration plant covered by thick skin. In a moment, Mr. Feathersmith will proceed on his daily course of conquest and calumny with yet another business dealing. But this one will be one of those bizarre transactions that take place in an odd marketplace known as the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 11th of April 1963, written by Rod Serling but based on a short story by Malcolm Jameson and directed by David Lowell Rich. Tonight we have a one-time Twilight Zone director in David Lowell Rich and he might have only done one Twilight Zone but by this time in his career he was a very experienced director. 
He made his directing debut in 1950 and worked non-stop through the 50s with many many episodes of television, but come the 1970s, his work was primarily in television movies and of note, for a period he got caught up in the disaster movie craze of the time, directing such wonderfully titled films as Death Flight, The Runaway Train, and one which I think I mentioned here many moons ago that will be of particular interest to Twilight Zone fans, and that's the 1973 film starring William Shatner called Horror at 37,000 feet. A disaster movie that combined an airplane in peril with the supernatural. <laughs> I think that thing only wants me. They'll believe anything now that offers them the barest hope of survival. And they'll do anything, no matter how stupid or bestial. Homo sapiens in all his glory. You really hate yourself that much? <laughs> I always wait for that. The defrocked priest, the light of the armchair analyst. Where did you lose your faith? I didn't, it lost me. <laughs> I'm frightened. Can you help me? I'm sorry, I'm fresh out. Aren't you afraid? Of dying. I gave that up along with the rest of my illusions. I don't understand you. Those are only words. Words, yes. We talk a lot in the church. It keeps us from asking why we can't have one sign, one tiny infinitesimal sign to sustain us in the darkness. To touch, to see. Father. Don't look to me. I have nothing. So pre-opening narration we get the set up to our story where Mr. Feathersmith reveals to Mr. Dietrich that he has bought out a loan that he's taken for his business and he's calling in that loan early so that Mr. Dietrich becomes bankrupt. I think special mention has to go to the actress who Unfortunately, I can't find the name of who gives us this wonderful little moment. I can just see him now, that big happy grin on his face just before he draws the blood. Have a cigar, Mr. Dietrich, before I rip you to pieces, but I must have my little fun first. Have a cigar. Have a cigar, Mr. Dietrich. So the story itself, as we know from the last episode, was quite different to the one that we got here. And Martin Grams Jr. writes in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that Sailing was teaching at college during the time that this episode was produced, and one month before the episode went to film, Sailing had one of his students read the story for him while he composed the adaptation. And of course, the episode was based on the short story Blind Alley by Malcolm Jameson. Now, the original story was in a magazine, one of those wonderful little American pulp magazines, and it was called Unknown Worlds from June 1943. But it was actually later collected in a Rod Serling anthology called Rod Serling's Triple W, Witchers, Warlocks and Werewolves. Now Rod Sailing's name is on it, but apparently it was ghost edited by a gentleman called Gordon R. Dixon, 
So it was probably one of those cases where Rod Sailing just put his name to it and maybe didn't have much to do with it. I don't know. So there are many key differences with the story of Blind Alley and of late, I think, of Cliffordville. And we'll touch on some of them during this show, but one of the key differences is that there is this character of Hecate played by Wright King. So Sailing uses this character to kind of frame the whole thing, which I actually think was a good call. But the ending to this is quite different, so it kind of needed that framing device. But this actor, Wright King, who we also saw in Shadowplay, would also go on to play Dr. Galen in Planet of the Apes. Tell me, how long have you been performing this illustrious task? 34 years, sir. I've been in this building for 34 years. I got a got a gold watch last year. A gold watch. 34 years in the building. Your aggressive self-assurance unnerves me. That's practically as long as I've been in the building. But I didn't start here, Hackett. No, indeed. I started in a little town called Cliffordville. Cliffordville, Indiana. You ever hear of it, Hackett? It's a coincidence, sir. I was born in Cliffordville. I grew up there. Well, 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 we're very much alike. It's interesting to compare this story to another season four episode when we consider the usual question of episode length. Now, back in Death Ship, we had a Richard Matheson short story that in its original form would have probably fitted the half-hour time slot pretty much perfectly, but they added in extra scenes to fit the hour-long format, and on that occasion I think it worked really well. But here, we actually have the opposite of that. The short story Blind Alley is actually pretty long, and maybe it would have fitted the hour-long format, but I actually think that Sailing recognised that some of the elements of that story feel like filler on the page, never mind on the screen. So Sailing cuts down things that don't matter in the short story, and he amplifies some things that he feels actually make the story more important. In Blind Alley, Mr. Feathersmith doesn't just bump into the devil who offers him the deal. He first of all needs to speak to his fixer, who is called Forfin. Then Forfin introduces him to Madame Hecate, but she's not the one who gives him the deal either, she's just someone in the middle as well. Then Feathersmith needs to speak to the credit man, and then finally Madame Hecate introduces him to the devil, and they make the deal. It's overly long and it doesn't feel particularly necessary. Now the story seems to enjoy playing with the work of the devil as if it's kind of a bureaucratic process the same way we have in our business dealings and so on. And the story seems to be quite amused by that. But would it make for an entertaining episode? I don't think so. So Sailing gets rid of all of that and slims it down to what it needs to be. He meets the devil who offers him a deal. So this is a case where a season four episode is actually the streamlined version of the story. 
And another one of our main differences is that the devil in Blind Alley is described as a chubby little man in a pinstriped suit. But who we get on screen couldn't be more different. How do you do, sir? Who are you? Devlin. First name's not important. I own this building. I'm aware of that, Mr. Feathersmith. I'm aware of that, but I'm not aware of you having an office here, whoever you are. Oh? I just opened it up. As a matter of fact, I've opened it for your convenience. Won't you sit down? Why? Why, because we've got some business to transact, you and I. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be comfortable. Miss Devlin is played by the great Julie Newmar before she donned her iconic Catwoman outfit. Now, Julie was born in Los Angeles in 1933, and her father was a pro football player, and her mother a dancer and later a fashion designer. Now, as a child, Julie studied dance, and this was her gateway into acting after she landed the role of a ballerina in the Broadway musical Silk Stockings in 1955. And as her career progressed, there was a battle of sorts that she had to fight, because as anyone who watches this episode can see, she's an incredibly beautiful woman. But what tended to come with that was that people were wanting to cast her purely based on her looks, and giving her parts that really didn't stretch beyond her looks. But Julie was and is more than her looks, and more than anything, she enjoyed being able to make people laugh. And when we learn that about her, I think we can see this in her performance here on The Twilight Zone as Miss Devlin. It would be very easy to have her as this kind of sexpot seductive character, but I don't think she plays it that way. She's sexy because she's incredibly beautiful and she has this charm and charisma about her, but that's all natural to her. And it's not what she's using to lure Feathersmith into signing the contract. She's negotiating with him on his own terms. She's not fluttering her eyelashes at him. And she is funny. This isn't broad comedy, but it has moments of the lighter touch comedy that Serling was actually better at. So I think she's fabulous in this part. Then of course in 1966, her role as Catwoman in the Batman television series catapulted her into superstardom. But true to her desire to be known for more than her looks, she successfully worked in fashion and she held three US patents for women's underwear and also went into real estate. And while she did work steadily over the next few decades, her role as Catwoman still casts a long shadow, and she returned to the role for two animated Batman 66 movies in 2016 and 2017, which as of the time of this recording are her last two roles. Miss Devlin, let's you and I talk something over. Indeed, Mr. Feathersmith, I had intended that we should. Let me suggest a possible transaction. You say you're bored, you've got everything you want, the pleasure's not in the possession, it's in the desperate struggle to possess. That's the sense of it, isn't it, Mr. Feathersmith? Go on. So let's do this. 
Let's send you back to Cliffordville, the Cliffordville of years ago, and you can start all over again. Acquire, build, consolidate. How does that sound? Miss Devlin, you are not dealing with a fool now. I am not one of your sell your soul for a nickel country bumpkins. <sighs> Try this. You send me back in time, send me back to Cliffordville, but I want to look exactly as I did then. That's number one. Agreed. Number two, I want to have a memory of everything that's occurred in the last 50 years. I don't want that memory impaired one bit. Check again, Mr. Feathersmith. Number three, I want that town exactly as it was with the same people that I remember. All very easily arranged. Anything else? Number four, I want it to happen right away. I really like this scene because these kinds of stories where you're making a deal with the devil or a genie or whoever often have this built-in element where the deal goes bad because of some loophole. I mean, even the original short story has that to it. But this version of Feathersmith sits down and hashes it all out. He's a businessman. He's no stranger to loopholes. And Sailing is correcting something here that I do see as a bit of a flaw in that original story. In that version, Feathersmith, this savvy businessman, neglects that very important detail of not only wanting to go back to Cliffordville, but wanting to go back as a younger man. It doesn't really fit the character to be so slack with his deal-making and forgetting to ask for youth, but here he nails down almost every detail. So believing that he has negotiated all that he needs, the deal is done, and Feathersmith is sent back to Cliffordville. But note, in the short story, it's Cliffordsville, but here Sailing drops the S. This is your captain speaking. We are crossing the Indiana state line. For those of you who are interested, we have just gained an hour. Cliffordville. This stop is Cliffordville. Cliffordville? <laughs> the devil, you say? What a great simple and effective device that was. The old Feathersmith is looking at his watch on an airplane in his time, then all of a sudden, he's looking at his watch as a much younger man on a train bound for Cliffordville. And then we get a much more palatable portrayal of Feathersmith by Albert Salmi. And also a little nod to the Charles Beaumont story, The Devil You Say, which inspired Printer's Devil. So Mr. Feathersmith is of course played by Albert Salmi in the last of three Twilight Zone appearances. And we first encountered him as the vicious Joe Caswell in Execution, then Sergeant Corzorano in Equality of Mercy, and I like Salmi very much. I think I think he had quite a magnetic quality on screen with some of his roles. There was, in his previous Twilight Zone roles, there was an authenticity about him in both Execution and Equality of Mercy. 
and he seemed to have an 100% commitment to his roles and sometimes he would bring these little eccentricities or tics to the characters. For example, that scene early on where he's speaking to Dietrich, John Anderson's character, the way that Albert Salmi holds the match and lets it burn in his hand without watching it or even acknowledging that it's there. And then when he lights another match to light a cigar, he doesn't blow it out, but he puts it in his mouth to put it out. And then when he meets Dietrich again in Cliffordville as a younger man, I love the way he bites off the tip of his cigar and he says the line, wonderful having this little chat. I think Albert Salmi was full of these little things, but of course we can't bypass what is his most unusual Twilight Zone performance. I think the reputation of this episode precedes it for this very reason. So what to make of this very exaggerated performance by Albert Salmi? It's hard to think whether it's genius or ridiculous or a bit of both. Because he is just going for it. He made the choice and he went with it. And the way I kind of rationalize it is that part of his performance is him being an older man. And some people, as they age, do become more and more animated. And I think we've all probably known people like that. And Albert Salmi does tone down these things when he's playing the younger Feathersmith, but the way he speaks, his turns of phrase, they're all still there. So I do think that's maybe what he was going for. The, the older he got, the more animated he got. Now I'm not going to work through this second half of the story beat for beat because unfortunately we are pretty much out of trivia already. But it's also a catalogue of similar incidents where Feathersmith can't materialise any of the things that he thought he would be able to by going back in time. For example... I beg your pardon? The Widow Turner's land, south end of town, is it available? The Widow Turner's land? There were 1,400 acres there. 1,400 acres? Mr Gibbons, is there an echo in here or would it help if I hired an interpreter? Uh, no, indeed, Mr. Feathersmith. <clears throat> no, indeed. It's just that, uh, uh, well, sir, you're talking about a um, a very valuable piece of property. I'm talking about the Widow Turner's land, south end of town. Indeed, indeed. Beautiful spot. 1,400 extravagantly lovely acres. Singing birds and constant sunshine. It's a Garden of Eden for a man with vision. And the potential is unlimited. It's a swamp for mosquitoes and the potential is malaria. I just want you to tell me who owns it and how much they want for it. <clears throat> well, um, as a matter of fact, Mr. Feathersmith, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that land was purchased from the estate of the late Mrs. Turner by, um, by yours truly, uh, in partnership with a Mr. Sebastian Diedrich here in town. Uh, we each own half of it. Feathersmith wants to buy the land because he knows that there is oil underneath it. He also wants to meet the banker's daughter, and that doesn't work out as planned either. And this is a scene where I think Albert Salmi shows off some, some pretty good comic acting in his reactions to the situation. It's one of the funniest scenes in the Twilight Zone because it's not hilarious, but I think that's where the Twilight Zone was funniest. 
The daughter herself is playing it quite broad, but Albert Salmi has these kind of subtle reactions to it that I really think make it one of the funnier aspects of the Twilight Zone. So Feathersmith's big play was to buy the land with the oil underneath it, but he failed to consider one thing. That crummy swampland you sold me for a buck an acre is worth half a million times that. There's oil on that land, Mr. Gibbons, Mr. Dietrich, oil, black gold. There's enough oil in that land to produce 500 barrels of oil a day for the next 1,000 years. And you sold it to me for a buck an acre. <laughs> I swear I could almost feel sorry for you. Maybe you don't understand. No, we understand you, Mr. Feathersmith. I said oil. Oil, yes, yes. How's that for a small shocker to end the day? Well, at the time, it made us gulp a bit, too. At the time? Four years ago, when the first geological tests were made on the land, and we were told about the oil. Four years ago? Oh, indeed. There were samples taken of the soil at that time, too. And there was never any doubt that the land had oil under it. 6,000 feet under it, Mr. Feathersmith. Which means that it might just as well be on the moon. The moon? The oil can't be taken out of the ground, Mr. Feathersmith. It just can't be taken out. What do you mean it can't be taken out? You, you, you could drill down five miles if you needed to. Well, you could perhaps, Mr. Feathersmith, but nobody else on this earth could. And at that, you'd better be getting up off that seat and start inventing some new kind of a drill. So a quick mention for John Anderson, who plays Dietrich and does his usual sterling work now I won't go into his bio because I'm sure I've done that in the past at some point, but he was in A Passage for Trumpet, The Odyssey of Flight 33, and in the future we'll see him in The Old Man and the Cave. So it's a real shame that he didn't do a season 3 episode because then he'd have done one in every season. And Martin Grams Jr. documents an interview that he did where he says, all I remember was that Albert Salmi, who played the devilish character, had to laugh maniacally whenever he pulled a devious deed. However, Al couldn't laugh on cue. All David Rich, the director, could get out of him was a very heavy, totally unconvincing ha-ha-ha. David, a wonderful man, came up to me and said, John, what am I going to do with Al? I can't use that laugh. I said, Jesus, David, I don't know, but it sure ain't working, is it? I suggested that they lay down a soundtrack of somebody else's laughter. That's what they must have done, because they sure as hell couldn't use what Al was giving them. So the oil deal turn and bad really is the undoing of Feathersmith. Everything he does or tries from now on turns to nothing, because he's trying to achieve these things with the modern world in mind and it's just not that world yet. And I think this is yet another example of what a great adapter of other people's work Rod Serling was, and I do think this is an improvement over the short story, and rather ironically for a season 4 episode, one of the things that Serling gets better is the pacing. 
But what these dual visions, Blind Alley and of late I think of Cliffordville, also give us are two subtly different messages, but certainly with some crossover between the two. In both stories certainly we get to see a not very nice man get his comeuppance, but Blind Alley to me is more of a cautionary tale about our insistence to always label the past as better. We romanticise the old ways of doing things, but take for granted the benefits of the time we live in. And I think we're all prone to doing that to some degree, I know I am. So to examine that in Blind Alley, Feathersmith does need to remain as an old man, or things wouldn't be such a struggle for him, and he wouldn't find it as tiresome as if he'd went there as a younger man, as he does in Cliffordville. But in adapting it, we have to consider the man that Rod Serling was, because he was a man who very much did have a strong attachment to the past. Walking Distance, Willoughby, and several more are love letters to the past and simpler times. But Serling's idealised vision of it was white picket fences, bandstands, and ice cream floats. So for Feathersmith to use the past as a pathway to profit and domination is very much at odds with Sailing's vision of it. And to me, that's why of late I think of Cliffordville shifts its focus from where Blind Alley put it. Sailing's Cliffordville isn't a place of trains crowded with poorly paid workers and rich unhealthy food crummy hotels with too many stairs. In Sailing's Cliffordville, everyone seems to be quite happy and doing just fine, which is perhaps why the troubles that Feathersmith faces in the Twilight Zone's Cliffordville seem to be much more of a reaction to his attempts to abuse it, rather than in Blind Alley, where it's much more about him just finding out that the old days aren't quite what he thought they were. But in Sailing's vision, the focus really seems to be on punishing Feathersmith for not overly romanticising the past, but trying to corrupt it and abuse it and use it to his own advantage. I think this section of the podcast where I sum up my general thoughts about an episode seems to have become a section where I disagree with Mark Zickry. In The Twilight Zone Companion he says, of late I think of Cliffordville remains static and uninvolving. The age makeup on several actors is mediocre and Salmi never makes a convincing 75-year-old man. Likewise, the final revelation of Feathersmith being an old man in a young man's skin is a bit contrived. At no point prior to this has Feathersmith shown any sign of infirmity. More than that, the revelation is unnecessary. Feathersmith doesn't fail because of his chronological age, it is Feathersmith's mind that defeats him, not his body. So I do agree with some parts of it because sure the makeup isn't that great but it's the kind of thing that I give a pass to because of when it was made. Aging up an actor with makeup is something that was very limited in its effectiveness even for decades after this. But I do also agree that the revelation about Feathersmith being an old man in a young man's body was unnecessary. I don't think the story really needed it. Feathersmith's failures 
were more than enough to make him want to go back to his own time. But where I do disagree is that it's static and uninvolving, because I actually think there are some wonderful directorial flourishes here from David Lower Rich. We have several locations, outdoor shots, and some shots that are not typical in the Twilight Zone. The scene where Feathersmith is seemingly trying to prop himself up when his world is turned upside down and the camera spins in time with him, that's a wonderful shot. And while I think Salmi clearly tried something with his portrayal of Feathersmith as an old man that is so out there that if you don't like it, I'm not going to try and change your mind. I do think that he was quite magnetic as the younger Feathersmith. He played a great villain, and I always find Albert Salmi to be quite a magnetic presence on screen, and his commitment to his part is never in question. If there are any scenes that are surplus to requirements in that typical season 4 fashion, I don't really mind, and to be honest, I don't really notice. I like watching Salmi, and especially when you've read the short story or heard me reading it to you, I really think Sailing did a great job of cutting out what wasn't needed. And Feathersmith's cosmic justice here has a nice unique spin on it that differentiates it from a Twilight Zone tale where someone is simply sent to purgatory. He is a man who is all about control, he needs to control everything. And while he says that putting the work in was the best thing about building his empire, he enjoyed the journey more than the destination. And to be honest, I can understand that point of view, but he's not true to those words. Because when he goes back, he's not putting the work in. He's just trying to get rich quick, using his knowledge of the future. And that's his undoing. So while there is this business of the little twist about him being an old man, in a young man's body that doesn't really go anywhere and isn't really needed. I think it takes away from the story slightly because to me the whole thing isn't Feathersmith being tricked by the Twilight Zone or being put into an unwinnable situation. The power here is actually in his own hands. If he had gone back in time and just put the work in like he said, then there is every possibility that he could have built his empire again. But he was a man so used to having wealth that he felt that the world owed him wealth. He was the architect of his own undoing. And the episode as a whole is this glorious twisted mirror image of walking distance. Martin Sloan wanted to go back to a time before he was in the rat race. Feathersmith wanted to go back so he could get right back in it. So in the overall scheme of things, I would put this maybe in the top tier of season 4, and maybe at the bottom of the top tier of the Twilight Zone as a whole, but certainly near to the top of the mid-tier. And while I don't think this is going to be a favourite that I put on very often, I don't think it's going to be too long before I start to think of Cliffordville again. Mr. William J. Feathersmith, Tycoon who tried the track one more time and found it muddier than he remembered, proving with at least a degree of conclusiveness that nice guys don't always finish last, and some people should quit when they're ahead. Tonight's tale of Iron Men and Irony, delivered FOB from the Twilight Zone. So another season four episode is done. We have four left. 
Now, it is traditional at the end of each season that we do some sort of wrap-up show. Now, I will do a chat with Luke. I haven't approached them about that yet, but I'm sure he'll be happy to do it. But there's also a listener contribution show. Now, I won't go into that yet because I've got four more episodes of season four to do. So much for me getting it done in a year, but that wasn't that wasn't a normal year. So I, I think I can be... Um, maybe given a pass for that but yeah you know just start to think about your season four experience if you want to contribute a clip to it you know what are your favorites what are the ones you like least all that kind of stuff i will give some pointers some topics that you can use if you want but you're also free to kind of just say what you want about season four in your own way so i won't go into it in this episode and don't start sending them in yet but maybe just start to think about it and i will give you details about that in the future now since i did my last proper episode if you like uh, which wasn't a short story reading my last review episode we have had a bit of twilight zone news and that is that the new twilight zone has now ended there was a statement from monkey paw productions that They had told all the stories that they wanted to tell, and this was now the end. And I've got to say, I'm very sad about that. I know it seemed to be quite a divisive show. I'm not going to second guess why anyone did or didn't like it. Everyone's opinions are... Everyone's opinions are their own, and their thoughts on that are their own. Um, I spoke a bit more about it in an episode of Aftermath that I do over on the Patreon recently about my thoughts about that i won't go into it too much here but you know i am very sad about it it was a show that i enjoyed i think i'm not saying that they're lying but i i don't know i don't feel that they had told all the stories that they wanted to tell i felt like they were getting into their stride i think that there's other things at play but when these kind of announcements are made You know, there is always that kind of public face on these things. There are reports that CBS wanted more, but it was Monkey Paw who didn't want to do it anymore, which is also very unfortunate. I think there is a brick wall that seems to go up every time that there is a new version of the Twilight Zone or or talk of a new version of the Twilight Zone. And I won't get into that too much, but I think one of the saddest things for me is that I remember the excitement of it coming out and the excitement was not just for what the new material would be like but it was also that the Twilight Zone was a living and breathing thing again Um, something that we could discuss that we could enjoy we could like we could dislike the same as the original show but the same as several properties from that time for better or worse you know Star Trek Mission Impossible Any show that has gained new life from being continued beyond its original creators. For some people, Twilight Zone without Rod Sailing at the helm is a blasphemy. And I'm not saying I would argue against that, but I would disagree with that. I think think continuing it is a great way to honour him. Keep it high standard, keep it high production. And this is the only time really where I feel that it truly has done that. Um, So I'm really sorry to see it go. 
but I'm also thankful that while covering it on this show kind of exposed things that I probably didn't really want to see sometimes, not in the show itself, I still think that I'm glad that I got to do it. I'm glad that I got to speak with the producers, that I got that great chat with Wynne Rosenfeld. And that when I asked the Twilight Zone podcast community to kind of lend their voices to it as well, the listener feedback sections were, you know, some of my favourite things. So, I will raise a glass to this iteration of it. I'm sad that now we have three versions of the Twilight Zone that never got beyond two or three seasons. I would like to see this go to five. And with ten episodes a season, I think 50 new stories in the Twilight Zone would have been a really great thing. So, anyway, it wasn't to be, but I for one shall miss it, so... Um, my thanks to Monkey Paw and Jordan Peele and Wynne Rosenfeld and everyone involved uh, for making that show. So we have quite a few uh, listeners chiming in this episode, so I will hand over to them in a moment. But first of all, I want to thank uh, Trivial Comments and Heidi Heidi for their iTunes reviews. And Heidi Heidi says that the podcast is like sleepy time tea. And you know... She's not the first to say that they listen to this podcast when they go asleep, so I thank you for that. I don't mind that. And also for the new members of the After Hours Club, we have Jay Warmack, Edward Greer, Jay Copey, Miguel, Xander Payne, Mickey McKeown, and Jason Tannock. They have all taken their places by the fireside in the After Hours Club where you can get exclusive podcasts about things like vintage rod sailing, the 80s Twilight Zone, soon to be the 2000s Twilight Zone, short story readings, episode commentaries for episodes that I've already covered, and all manner of wonderful things like that. So that is over at the After Hours Club, which is patreon.com slash Podcast. So thank you to the new members for supporting the show. So let's go over to some friends of the show now to hear what they've got to say about some season four episodes. Hey there, Tom. Harold Clark reporting in from Buda, Texas, talking about the new exhibit. So this is my favorite episode of season four. just always enjoyed it when I was a little kid. I'm not sure what it was, maybe because it was a little bit more of a horror slant, something a little bit different for the Twilight Zone per se. Uh, but yeah, I've just always enjoyed it. And this was one of the episodes I was looking forward uh, to you seeing and hearing your your thoughts about. Um, so watching it uh, again this time, uh, I noticed, man, it had a great set design. Uh, when they had the... Uh, the, the conversation about, hey, it's time to, to sell the, the wax museum. They could have done that anywhere, but for whatever reason, maybe they just had the set on hand, but they decided to do it in, uh, in his office. It's just filled with all kinds of knickknacks and paddy wax and all this stuff. So I just thought that was an interesting, interesting uh, idea to, to put that in there. Uh, again, they could have done that, that, that with anything. Of course, the, the wax figures look great. Um, you know, just, you know, creepy, and uh, yeah. So I just I've I always enjoyed the figurines, figurines, uh, the figures, wax figures from the show. Um, 
thought there were some interesting directorial choices as well. I noticed this second time around. Um, you know, when Jack uh, Jack the Ripper has his first kill, uh, you you just look deep into his eyes, and then the camera fades uh, into the round ball on the on the handrail where uh, uh, where uh, Martin's going to enter the scene. I thought that was a kind of clever little idea. And I also uh, thought it was interesting that you're not sure exactly what's happening because even though you see Jack's arm move, you're not sure if his wife actually stepped on the device that was shown earlier uh, in the episode. And this is something that I talked about in the 2020 uh, episode uh, called Eight, where I thought in that episode they just showed too much and they didn't leave anything up to your imagination. Uh, but with this episode, even from the beginning, even though, quote-unquote, the, the figurine moves, uh, you're not sure if it was just you know, normal. But again, you're not you're not sure exactly how and why his wife got killed. Uh, but again, that, that's that's the be- the good part about this episode. Uh, then I thought another interesting, uh, neat uh, directorial thing was uh, the third kill. Um, by this time, you know, Landro does the, the choke on the, on, the, on the museum owner, and it just comes right out of the blue. He just straight up moves. So you're like, wow, uh, something's going on. And before your brain can comprehend anything, uh, it immediately switches to the loud, piercing noise of the tea kettle. I just thought that was uh, a very cool moment. For some reason, my brain says that's a very Alfred Hitchcock-type uh, move, and I can uh, honestly say that I didn't see the twist coming when I was a you know first saw this long long ago. You know I just figured he'd go crazy just like any other typical Twilight Zone, uh, but to whew, to to be the the worst uh, of the murderers and murderers row, hmm, well that's very interesting. Um, uh, a piece of dialogue that I. I forgot that was said that just really impacted me this time uh, was uh, early on when they're talking, Martin's talking with the the museum owner, and he's explaining why even just moving the museum to a new spot wouldn't work. And he says, uh, the outside world offers them fears we could never match. The ovens at Belson and Dachau have ruined our chamber of horrors. They live in fear day in and day out. It's the world, Martin. And I thought about that and I thought, whew, how things have changed since that episode came out and how true that is. The, uh, just the horrors that have happened in this world in the last year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, 40 years, all across the world. I mean, obviously, I'm very USA-centric, but just some of the stuff that's happened basically on every continent that we just couldn't imagine ever happening has and just has really just desensitized us. And I guess it's kind of a sad commentary, but um, maybe prophetic. Uh, so anyway, so this, again, this is my favorite episode, um, a top 10 episode overall probably, of the whole run. Uh, so again, I'm uh, just looking forward to hearing your thoughts about it and I will talk at you later.
Hi, Tom. This is Miguel from Santa Cruz, California, calling you, uh, sending a voice message to you instead of typing because I'm a slow, slow and bad typer. And I've been looking forward for you to doing the new exhibit for a while now, ever since you started season four. Um, I really enjoyed your episode or your critique of the new exhibit. Um, that show became one of my episode became one of my favorites, uh, like 13 years ago as a lifelong twilight zone fan, I'd always enjoyed, but it was never really my favorite episode until 2008 when I decided to adapt this to stage that year. I've directed and produced a handful of twilight zone productions. And this one was my very, very, very favorite to direct. Usually when a Twilight Zone is done here in the United States, um, nine out of ten times those productions are going to go camp, which I guess makes sense. I mean, the dialogue and the style are old and easy to make fun of. Um, but because I respect Sterling so much, um, I decided when directing these that I would honor him and honor the Twilight Zone uh, and do the episode, do the episodes and direct them like real pieces of theater, like real plays. The great advantage about directing a Twilight Zone for stage is that you can let the scenes grow and breathe uh, without the tight constraints about being up against a commercial. Uh, the characters can, can, can branch out. They can discover more um, and be more human-like. <laughs> Uh, rather than just a character on the screen or a caricature of, on a screen, the story stretches out. The story itself stretches out and becomes uh, like a real, uh, living, breathing piece of theater if done correctly. The actors and I had a really good time putting this production on. We had such a good time. We understood Martin better and knew from our table read from the very beginning from our table reads that he was the murderer no doubt with table reads and as as we rehearse you know we find deeper meaning for uh for for characters and for these characters and we got deeper into martin's motive you know what his backstory was um, what psychological uh disorder he may have um does he have a dual personality is he a sociopath bipolar etc you know discover discovering why he loved those wax figures so much, you know, why? I mean, it was, it was a ton of fun and we did a lot of discovery, a lot of discovery, uh, with, with the story in itself and, and just the characters. What I did differently on stage as opposed to the TV is one of the figures, uh, murdered a character. We would crossfade the lights to a silhouette and up on the stairs, I showed a dim spotlight on a very catatonic Martin as the murderers commenced upstage. It was a super cool effect, and it was a lot of fun to do. And we also put in a cool uh, decapitation scene in that as well. And, and I know the show is really ambiguous. You don't know if it's Martin or if it's the wax figures when you first see it. You know, like, oh, these wax figures are coming to life. And, and then, you know, or is it Martin? Is it Martin? Did Martin really do it? In, in this play, in our telling, we made sure that people knew um, that it was Martin. But it was still creepy to see the wax figures move and murder 
these characters. It was super cool. Another thing we did differently is make Emma's brother a woman and call her Diane instead of Dave. I did it because we have a lot of strong female actors in the community. And I really have an aversion to male-dominated casts. I really do. Um, and uh, she was great. Anyways, she was the one who was decapitated. Uh, the actors who played the statues did an incredible job at keeping still and murdering. Our theater has the benefit uh, to have a proscenium curtain. So we did the basement scenes behind the curtain. And if we would go to another interior scene, like the kitchen or the museum, we would close the curtains, which gives our statue actors time to like put their arms down and rest until another basement scene. You know, it takes real stamina uh holding an axe in one spot uh for a long period of time we did this we did this in 2008 in tandem with person or persons unknown which is a show which is an episode i forced on stage because i liked it so much and wanted to do it it was hard to do because of all the scene changes and it was 2008 halloween episode um our halloween show that we did for the theater and it was it was a blast it was so much fun i've directed and produced over 25 episodes and and this is probably one of my prouder moments <laughs> as far as directing something uh because you know the the actors were into it the, the 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 crew were into it but the audience were into it they totally got what we were doing they felt the moment you know they felt the suspense you know when when one of the characters were in the basement with with the wax figures and the lights went down you can feel the tension in the audience oh no something's gonna happen something's gonna happen so it was cool man we we really we really got it down um got that sucker down well i i was for the halloween episode i was gonna do on thursday we leave home because that that's my one of my favorite episodes and i really wanted to do it but um it was gonna be hard finding actors who wanted to just stand out stand with no lines looking miserable as if they're on a distant planet on the sun all day um so i decided to scrap that and it was between the new exhibit and miniature which is also really good to do i decided new exhibit because it was better for halloween it was scarier and uh and it took place pretty much in one basement which was great for the stage and easier to adapt and i was a little hesitant at first like how's but once we got into it, my goodness, we 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 really turned it out, and and like I said, we had we had so 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 much fun. Anyways, I just wanted to share it with you. Um, you know, I I love the Twilight Zone. I, I love your podcast, and um, I'm not expecting you to share it at all. I just I just wanted to share it. I knew this was coming, and at the very least, share it with you uh, of my experience with the new exhibit and and Charles Beaumont. Um, I by the way the the episode of the new exhibit in the history of Charles Beaumont, uh, him, you know, this being ghost written, really interesting. And that part, I really didn't know. I have a book of, of his pen written, uh, or, uh, typewritten, uh, play, uh, scripts autographed by Charles Beaumont. Um, and I had no idea that, that he, uh, that that was uh, ghost written, but I think, I think, I think uh, he, the, the person who did actually write it did get credit for it in another manuscript or another uh, printing that came out, a book of Twilight Zone, uh, Twilight Zone scripts. I, I think he did. Anyways, I could be wrong on that. Anyways, I just thank you so much for doing doing this and doing your podcast and 
and uh, I really dig what you do. I'll, I listen to every episode, man. And uh, yeah, dude, I can't wait till you get to on Thursday. We leave home. That's a good one. That's that's, that's such a good one. But anyways, I want to stop yapping. All right, Tom. Thank you so much. I just want to clarify. I did twenty five play productions, not twenty five. Uh, episodes of the twilight zone that's a lot of episodes i did 25 play productions in my lifetime the new exhibit being my favorite i've done six uh play productions of the twilight zone all legit we got the rights through don cogden um you know uh charles beaumont richard matheson couldn't get rod serling ones uh rod serlings were always hard to get a stage production so we never did a rod serling another reason why we didn't do on thursday we leave home so uh we never did a rod serling but uh but yeah we got the rights to that just in case cbs is listening we were we we're good to go we we're good to go uh so um but uh thank you so much tom uh thanks a lot for uh for doing this show and i'm looking forward to the rest of season four peace Hi, Tom. Chad here, heeding the call for some season four audio feedback. I just watched the new exhibit and of late, I think, of Cliffordville. I watched them back to back, so I'll cover them both together, like a two-for-one sale. I liked both episodes and felt there were some similarities between them. Both episodes hit familiar Twilight Zone themes. In the new exhibit, Martin, the obsessed wax museum curator, was so engrossed in his adulation of the lifelike murderers that they became his idols. His love for them eclipsed the love he showed for the actual people in his life, which was shades of the more sympathetic Henry Bemis from Time Enough at Last. The wax killers came to life to wreak havoc, and this reminded me of the dummy. And perhaps it also foreshadowed Talky Tina in season five. I found it troubling that Martin, on discovering that his wife was murdered, pretty quickly shrugged this off, didn't seem to care, and just started digging the basement grave to bury her body. I was He was more disturbed by his brother-in-law's death, who he didn't even like, and by the murder of his old boss, which compelled him to actually turn on the objects of his fascination. The finish offered the world a different explanation than we, the audience, had, and that was a nice bit of dramatic irony. Overall, this was a great show and really well done. Cliffordville similarly tread on some similar themes. Like the I Dream of Genie episode, this episode knows that it's working on a well-worn convention, the old deal with the devil trope that's been explored many times. So the villain, Smith, acknowledges the trope by claiming to already be wise to the trap. He makes some specific provisions in his deal with the devil, which nonetheless don't stop him from forgetting some key details that ruin his plan and leave him with his comeuppance in the end. The point that the journey, not the destination, is the magic for him is a message that really rings true. I also love the Dutch, the Dutch tilt camera angles and close-ups that were used literally to show us when things were going sideways in the climax scene. One key observation I had is that Fezzer Smith was clearly portrayed as a villain, and he was portrayed as a villain because he was greedy, ruthless, and cruel. He relished being better off than others and felt his wealth was truly his manifest destiny, brought about by his own hard work and drive and efforts. As his trip back in time demonstrates, though, we are a part of a large, complex world, and luck can play just as key a hand in how our lives turn out as our own efforts do. 
the cruel, wealthy Baron ends up the custodian he looked down on earlier in the episode, and sadly enough, the custodian mirrors Feathersmith's cruelty, indicating that wealth and greed itself is a source of rot. I'm struck by how the ruthlessness and greed of this character was portrayed as so villainous in 1964, but would probably be applauded and seen as cool and heroic today in the actual world of Bezos's, Trump's, and Zuckerberg's. I compare this character's portrayal to that of Gordon Gecko, who about 20 years later in the Reagan trickle-down economics 1980s famously said, greed is good. And it seems that selfishness and greed ever since has somehow been portrayed as heroic instead of villainous and immoral. Also, this episode wins all the points because Julie Newmar plays the devil, and you can see the flourishes that made the Catwoman character so iconic just a few years later when the Batman TV series that captivated my childhood hit the small screen. Newmar definitely stole the show hands down. As always, Tom, thanks for putting on such a great podcast and for cultivating such a great community. Cheers. Hey, Tom, Jeff here. I thought I'd chime in for the first time to give a couple comments on, of late I think of Cliffordville, which I think is an underrated and often misunderstood episode. The, the most common criticisms I've heard about this one tend to re revolve around two things. The first being, let's call it the distracting voice used by Albert Salmi. Uh, and number two, that it's just a rehash of old themes that have been done better before, that are kind of being remixed and cobbled together. Um, for example, people say it's yet another pining for the past episode or another retread of the deal with the devil plot. But I, I really disagree that this is just a retread. The title of the episode, and I think the story that it was based on as well, really do invoke the walking distance style uh, pining for one's lost youth or return to an idealized past. But that's really not what I think this episode is really about. I think the episode is about is really a character study of an egoist. Um, Martin Sloan back in Walking Distance pines for an idealized past, but he accidentally stumbles into it. Gart Williams wants to escape the stress of the modern world, but to the extent he has any agency in getting himself to Willoughby, I think he does it subconsciously. But Feathersmith in this episode, on the other hand, he purposely negotiates a return to the past. He does it consciously. He does it intentionally. His purpose in returning is not to bask in the idyllic glow of old-timey Cliffordville. I don't think it has anything to do with Cliffordville. It's not to escape his modern life either. It's to be able to experience the conquest all over again. That's what he loves vanquishing his competitors, climbing that mountain. And for him, returning to Cliffordville is an aggressive act of a narcissist. The look on his face when he first arrives back in the past says it all. He's there to feel that rush of victory. And of course, he's very self-aggrandizing. He thinks he can not only make it to the mountaintop again, but he assumes that he can use some shortcuts to get there quickly as well. Those attempts fall flat, of course. But when he first started his rise as, as an actual young man, he, he may have been cocky, ambitious, Machiavellian, but at least he had to put in time and work for his success. But his older ego-inflated self thinks he can skip all that and still win. I think the episode comments also on how random and arbitrary things can contribute to success or failure too. Maybe Feathersmith's original rise to success was based on sweat and business skill or Maybe he also got some lucky breaks along the way that he's now reconfigured in his brain as having been personal triumphs. 
After all, look at what happens with the Hecate character when he's in the right place at the right time toward the end of the episode and ends up with a deed to valuable property which totally alters his fate and propels him to the top of the business world. And Hecate's laugh at the end and his mimicking of Feathersmith's words from the beginning of the episode leave me wondering whether Hecate might now misunderstand his own rise as having been all of his own doing. Uh, and maybe he'll foolishly make a similar deal with the devil to try to feel that conquest again himself. The Salmi performance is definitely weird, uh, but I also find it kind of mesmerizing. It's certainly not cliche. It's certainly not played out. It's at the very least interesting and memorable. Uh, and you know what? A lot of successful people in the real world are very weird, whether it be mannerisms or beliefs or fashion or styles of speech or whatever. I will acknowledge it's hard to watch Salmi knowing what became of him at the end of his life. And there's another morbid connection there to walking distance in that a similar fate ended up befalling Gig Young, who played Martin Sloan in that episode. But I'll leave it at that. So I'd say that Cliffordville isn't the very best that TZ has to offer, but it is one of my favorite episodes to watch. And I think it's a lot more rich than it gets credit for. No pun intended. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Hey, Tom listeners, Zach Moore here with my thoughts on I Dream of Genie and the new exhibit. What a tale of two episodes these are. Uh, so first, I Dream of Genie is probably one of the worst episodes of the show. Uh, again, the comedy doesn't age well. Nothing happens in it. I mean, the whole I'm going to think about three potential things I could do with this one wish I have is just bizarre the range of uh, Howard Morris, who plays George, is, is pretty good. Like, he plays the kind of dweeby guy and then the aloof rich guy and then the president. I mean, he, he goes through a lot of personalities, so he's clearly a, a talented guy, and I would have loved for him to be in a, in a better episode. But, yeah, and then it just hits on some beats we've already seen, you know, the, oh, I'm in love with the girl and she doesn't love me back and there's a genie like it's just the, the things done in this episode have been done better in previous episodes they weren't the greatest episodes but they still did them better than they were done here uh, I mean the scene with the genie was probably the best scene the gag with the dog being different and every reality that he imagined was I, I, I guess amusing that's the one gag I at least latched onto and thought was amusing uh, and then aliens showing up at the end of <laughs> him being president it's like he really wasn't in his own little twilight zone episode there but yeah i mean that's really all there is to it like the whole idea that you only get the one wish it's so weird i mean they you know to their credit they at least call it out that hey that's not what it's supposed to be and then he chooses to be the genie at the end and i guess reinstitutes the three wishes thing and i'm glad him and his dog were, were you know in the in the bottle together <laughs> You know, I'm glad he, he took him on the genie journey. So now him and his dog will just be genies forever. So that's that's cute. I get, yeah, I guess he, he reinstitutes the uh, the old school genie look as well at the end. So there is that going on. And and I guess he's in the same back alley as the, the dead man shoes. You know, around the corner there's <laughs> this dead man shoes are sitting there in the alley. That's what I thought of at the end. But, but yeah, I mean, there's really not much else to it, uh, unfortunately. And 
I never really watched the show other than when I was a kid on Nick at Night, like the I Dream of Genie show. But of course, that's what everybody thinks about these days. But that was some great trivia about the song. I I never heard about the, um, the, the where it that phrase originally came from, which, which again makes it a really odd. Once you know where it came from, an odd source for a a comedy episode of The Twilight Zone and a sitcom uh, to 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 take that line uh, and use it as as the title. Anyway, moving on to the new exhibit. Like I said, a tale of two episodes because this this might be the best episode of the fourth season of the Twilight Zone. But you know, there've been a couple of great ones so far, but this is definitely up there. One of, one of the best episodes, not just of this season, but of the whole series. And, and and I like it for a lot of reasons. One, I mean, the the performance by Martin, Martin, the name of the actor and the name of the character. So that's cool. His just mental unraveling because the guy is is established right off the top. He's clearly way too obsessed with his work he identifies with these these horrible people these murderers you know of history and he's he's always like oh, what drove them and and it sets up everything perfectly at the beginning because he's like they'll be immortalized and we never will and then he becomes one of these immortalized wax figures so he joins his 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 friends as he calls them and it's just very unsettling this is one of those episodes that you could still read both ways i think so Maybe I'm missing the point. I know it's all about the psychological breakdown in the sky, but it it could be open to interpretation just a little bit, kind of like A World of Difference, another one of my favorite episodes. The correct interpretation is he was the, the actor and not the businessman, uh, but I like to kind of see it the other way, kind of like Nick of Time as well. I like these am- ambiguous episodes because there's not... A lot of Twilight Zone episodes aren't ambiguous, and this is this is an ambiguous one. I, it could be, could be. Could be, but that uncanny valley again is you know another reason why I love this episode. That uncanny valley of the the inanimate becoming animate. I mean that's that's just a horror trope in itself. But the Twilight Zone, especially with the mannequins and like After Hours or the Dummy and the Dummy or, or even the Mystic Seer in uh, Nick of Time, right? These these objects or Living Doll, right? So these objects that that are harmless on the surface, but there's just something that uncomfortable about them. Um, and and that that's just literally brought to life <laughs> in this in this episode here. So I mean, I remember watching this episode for the first time sometime in college because the Sci-Fi Channel marathons that that were my Twilight Zone fandom was forged didn't show a lot of fourth season episodes, so I never saw this one. But uh, we uh, rented a a DVD from Netflix back when that was a thing, right? I guess they still do that. I don't know. Uh, but of of this particular uh, episode and watched it, and I got to say. You know, when I was a kid, the greatest jump scare of the Twilight Zone, uh, which has burned itself in my mind, was uh, Nightmare 20,000 Feet when uh, William Shatner opens up that curtain and sees the gremlin looking in the window at him, just terrifying. And um, I got to say, I got to get the similar feeling 20 years later or whatever, 15 years later, I'm in college watching this with a couple of friends. And um, when the last mannequin moves and strangles the boss i was like wow like that just came it came out of nowhere the episode is so well done where you don't see anything up to that point it's all implied you know it's like oh well the wife stepped on the trick thing we saw earlier maybe the wax figure fell over on the guy with the axe and then you just it slowly escalates and then you don't you've been trained not to expect anything any movement any kind of that stuff going on but you just straight up see this mannequin come to life, and it's so sudden, and the music sting. I think it was such a great jump scare, one of the best jump scares in the show. And having it be actors the whole time 
makes it so unsettling because it's the same thing you've been seeing, even especially when they all start approaching him. It's terrifying. And then, of course, you know, Martin Balsam starred in Psycho, or he was was in Psycho, and that that image of him stumbling back from the mannequins is very similar to him stumbling back from the staircase in Psycho. So just a great, like, across the board, hits all the points of Twilight Zone should be the psychological horror of everything. Uh, it, it's just A-plus in this episode. So, so one of the best episodes of season four, no doubt, and one of the best episodes of the series, I, I truly think so. And then la- last note I want to make, well, actually a couple last things about the actors. Uh, I'm, I'm recording this after hearing your podcast, Tom, so great trivia on that being Sally Field's mom. I mean, she's like a clone of Sally Field. It's so obvious now that I know that. Spot on. Like, she, she looks like, just like her mom. I didn't know she came from a, a family of, of actresses, so, so good, good for her. And even now that I've seen Sally Field play Aunt May in the Amazing Spider-Man movies, I'm like, I'm like that, she's around the same age as her mom was here in this episode and the same kind of vibe. And finally, the brother-in-law, I was like, who does this guy remind me of? And it's, it's Thomas Lennon. Thomas Lennon, who was in um, the new Twilight Zone, uh, Overture, he was the game show host. Uh, it's that same vibe. It's like the mustache, the mannerisms, the way he talks. I mean, even Thomas Lennon in a lot of his other roles is kind of like this this smarmy guy. This is like a 1960s Thomas Lennon, whoever played the, the brother-in-law, uh, Dave. So uh, that's the vibe I got from him. But anyway, I really did love the new exhibit, uh, especially revisiting here because I hadn't watched it in a long time, and it really holds up. Heavy hitter right here. This, th- this one, as of right now, probably my favorite episode of season four uh so just it's been fun revisiting these episodes with you tom and uh, and i look forward to finishing off season four with you this year and we'll talk to you then rod serling creator of the twilight zone will tell you about next week's story after this message if you want to get your thoughts onto the show then email tom at the twilight zone podcast with a clip of around five minutes give or take talking about any of the episodes so far in season four or the next one that's coming up. So let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what that is. And now, Mr. Serling. On our next excursion into the Twilight Zone, we borrow an imposing array of talent and call on the services of a distinguished author named Reginald Rose and some exceptionally fine acting talent in the persons of Mr. Pat Hingle, Miss Nan Martin, and Miss Ruth White. They appear in a story called The Incredible World of Horace Ford, and it's an incredible world indeed. Harvey Bender? Who's Harvey Bender? What's the matter? To stop it. He was one of the kids last night. What are you talking about? I saw him last night. Don't you know that's impossible? I know what I see. He was ten years old when you were ten years old. He's as old as you are. I tell you, I saw him. He's a grown-up man. You you think so. You you think so, don't you? Let me tell you, I saw him last night on Randolph Street, and I saw George Langford, and I saw Cy Wright, and they are still kids.